Last month saw a Congolese city of one million people taken over by a group suspected of links to Rwanda. Could this speak to a wider geopolitical strategy? York University professor Justin Poder joins us in this half hour to discuss this. Which big news stories over the last year didn't get as much attention as they deserved? We'll hear from Andy Lee Roth of Project Censored. And, as we reach the end of the Mayan calendar cycle, we'll discuss doomsday scenarios, real and imagined, with Michel Chosodovsky of the Center for Research on Globalization. On today's program, Congo, Project Censored, and Doomsday 2012. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of December 20th, 2012. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available for download from the Center's website at globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with some of the major news stories shaping the national and international political landscape. Kerry de Kirchhoff, former High Commissioner to Pakistan and Ambassador to Indonesia and Egypt, argues that Canada should step up its role in resolving the Syrian crisis by arming Syrian rebels and helping to enact a no-fly zone over the country, among other potential measures. In a report released Wednesday by the School of Public Policy, Kirchhoff writes, quote, To the extent that a political solution is not in the cards and that a direct military intervention is both unlikely and dangerous, providing weapons to the rebels is the only solution to speeding up the end of the conflict, unquote. The author also suggests Canada should help shape the post-Civil War Syria that emerges through the following measures. Recognize the rebel forces as the country's governing authority, engaging the Arab League more systematically, assisting in the post-Assad reconstruction, including assisting in a process of disarmament and reconciliation, and ensure Canada's actions in Syria bolsters Israel's security. The report can be read online at www.policyschool.ucalgary.ca slash publications. And that comes to us from Canada Newswire. A member of the National Opposition Coalition recognized by the U.S. and other allies as Syria's viable governing alternative has said that Russian civilians in the conflict-ridden country are considered legitimate military targets. To quote Haitham al-Male, a member of the National Coalition for Syrian Revolutionary and Opposition Forces, quote, Russia, like Iran, supports the Assad regime with weapons and ammunition, as well as in the political arena, so the citizens of these countries are legitimate targets for militants in Syria, unquote. This follows an announcement by a group of gunmen 
who kidnapped a Ukrainian journalist near the city of Homs in early October that Russians, Ukrainians, and Iranians in Syrian territory would all be targeted. The Free Syrian Army kidnapped 48 Iranian nationals in early August and threatened to kill them if demands for the release by President Assad of rebel prisoners were not met. And that comes to us from Russia Today. Three Russian warships and two support ships are being sent to join Russian naval forces in the Mediterranean, according to an announcement by the Russian Defense Ministry Tuesday. The Navy statement explains their mission includes exercises in air defense and anti-ship warfare and anti-submarine warfare. A Navy source told the Interfax News Agency that the deployment was planned as a contingency to evacuate Syria in the event Damascus loses more territory to rebel fighters. Moscow denies the move, reflects a change in their stance regarding the Syrian conflict. And that also comes to us from Russia Today. On November 20th, while the world's attention was focused on the conflict in Gaza, a Congolese rebel group by the name of M23 took over the city of Goma in the easternmost province of North Kivu. After successfully repelling a counterattack by the Democratic Republic of Congo's military, the M23 rebels agreed to withdraw from Goma earlier this month. Given the mineral wealth of the North Kivu region and accusations of M23 being a proxy for Rwanda, is there a larger geostrategy in play here? To help us explore this question, we spoke with Justin Poder. Justin Poder is an associate professor of environmental studies at York University, a writer and blogger, and the author of the recent book, Haiti's New Dictatorship, The Coup, the Earthquake, and the UN Occupation. Justin Poder has been to the Democratic Republic of Congo in the city of Bukavu twice in the last three years. Justin Poder, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Could you help uh, maybe provide us uh, with a little bit of background uh, of this conflict? Uh, I, I know that you've been uh, you've been to uh, Bukavu and you've which also in in uh, in the DRC. And you have uh, written uh, a couple of blogs about it. Uh, could you maybe, yeah, provide us uh, some of that historical context for us, please? Uh, for example, uh, the M23 itself. What exactly is the uh, evidence that this is a uh, a Rwandan-backed rebel group? Okay, a, a couple of points first. Before we get into the history, I think we should talk a little bit about the geography. So, where I spent time was in Bukavu which is in South Kivu, which is a province that, of course, borders North Kivu. Both of the Kivus are on the border with Rwanda. And the city of Bukavu has a kind of a sister city in Rwanda called Siangugu. The city of Goma has a kind of a sister city in Rwanda called Jisenyi. So in both of these cases, you could, other than the border control, simply walk from Gisenyi in Rwanda to Goma in um, Congo. You could walk from Siangugu in Rwanda to Bukavu in the Congo. Uh, so this is, this is the context in which this 
these conflicts are happening. So the nobody in the region, absolutely nobody who understands the geography or who lives there, has the slightest doubt that M23 is from Rwanda. When 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 they're negotiating, there, there are these long drawn out negotiations in Kampala now between M23 and the Congolese government. And one of the disputes is that how far M23 is supposed to withdraw from Goma. So they withdrew as part of this agreement, the ceasefire agreement with the government. And they, they want to count their withdrawal from the Rwandan border, and the Congolese government wants to count it from Goma. So it's, I mean, the Rwandan, Rwanda is part of any serious conversation. In fact, you know, it's, it's, its role has been less hidden in this latest round of conflict than it has in the past, I think. I think a lot of, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post, they're all writing about Rwanda's role. They've all named Rwanda since, since November. Now, what is the evidence? There's several sources of evidence. One of them is the, what, I mean, all of them are documented extensively in the reports by the United Nations Panel of Experts on Rwandan Involvement in the Congo. There's, the UN has published a bunch of, I mean, there was a report that was leaked to the media in October of 2012, but they've published a letter that came out pretty recently, like a 16-page letter with lots of details. Um, there's a testimony by Steve Page, the head of the experts, who's also uh, testified in front of the U.S. Senate, I believe. So there's lots of sources, but, but in terms of like what a what a, a simple simple evidence would look like, one is of course the geography, as I've explained, and the other is the personnel. So if you look at the commanders, one of the commanders of M23 is this guy Bosco Ntaganda. He's Rwandan. He was with the RPF when they invaded Rwanda, uh, you know, during the civil war and the Rwandan genocide in the 90s. Um, Zoltani Makenga, I believe is his name, also of, you know, Rwandan RPF origin. So they, you know, they say that they're Congolese Tutsis, but that's not really their, their military and organizational and professional background. You know, wherever they were born, they have been part of the Rwandan military and the Rwandan army. And the and the evidence found by the United Nations links them back to James Kaberebe, who was the Rwandan head of the Rwandan military today. And Kaberebe has been involved in successive invasions of the Congo since '96, '96, '98, and so on. After 98, the Rwandans stayed in the Kivus and they found various local names for the militias and, and the armed groups that they set up. The RCD was one of them, the CNDP was one of them, and now the M23 is one of them. So it's, it's, it's not a, it's not some kind of difficult investigative project to figure out who they are and what, what they're about. Um, it seems like the harder thing is, is of course getting 
people with influence in 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 the region, like the United States and Canada and, and Britain, to to actually pay attention and and apply a certain degree of historical memory to the to the situation. So, what about the the international community then, in terms of uh, the support? I mean, the, both the the democrat they got the Democratic Republic of Congo on the one side, you've got Rwanda on the other, and. Uh, there, you know, where where are you seeing that the major international players uh, positioning themselves here? Well, the major international players in that part of the world, the the United States is the big player, but other European countries have some some say, uh, and a lot of the northern European countries have been paying attention to the United Nations reports, and they've been cutting aid to Rwanda, and they've been publicly saying that Rwanda should stop this. And that's that's played a big role. I think that's the reason M23 are negotiating right now instead of continuing this kind of murderous march across the Congo. Um, A a guy from Friends of the Congo, Maurice Carney, he was was on the radio. He was on a radio program a few few weeks ago, maybe a week and a half ago, and he said something like, you know, M23 will go as far as they're allowed to go by the United States. And I think that's right. I think, you know, the U.S. has felt some pressure from Europe because, and from the the U.N. panel to to tell Rwanda that they've got to, they've got to negotiate. They've got to try to accomplish their goals with a less uh, destructive with a less, you know, destructive iron fist kind of approach. And there are, that, that is kind of where I think they're headed now. They're, they're headed towards trying to win at the negotiating table what they were forced to, you know, stop doing at, on the battlefield, which is they're, they're trying to make arguments that the Kivus specifically should be decentralized and probably ultimately partitioned into, you know, a, a, con- a set of countries, Eastern Congo or some something like that, that would then be easier mm. for Rwanda to dominate. And this is, you know, again, this is this is something that in, at the negotiating table in Uganda, M23 is talking about this in terms of federalism and federalist proposals. But if you look in the Ugandan newspaper, the Daily Monitor or the New York Times, I've written about these. Um, there are these op-eds where they're talking about how maybe in order to save Congo, we need to let it fall apart. Maybe Rwanda and Uganda, instead of um, being condemned, maybe they should be celebrated for uh, ushering in a new Africa's new next country. And you know they're offering. Sudan, South Sudan, as an example, and this is a terrible example because South Sudan has been had been fighting uh, for independence since 1950. I mean, basically since Sudan became an independent country, and they won their independence through a you know there was a peace process that agreed to a referendum, and and the referendum people voted overwhelmingly for independence. And so the the idea that this is comparable to the Kivus, which have been occupied by Rwanda for for 15 years, that have been plundered and pillaged and raped by these foreign powers, and uh, 
it. Like, there's absolutely no comparison at all. This is the, comes down to, at least officially, this idea of, uh, because uh, the, the Democratic Republic of Congo is largely underdeveloped, uh, at least as far as uh, international entities are concerned, and, and here you have uh, these robust forces in Rwanda and uh, Uganda that uh, might be better suited to developing it, or something along those lines? Or? No, it's, it's not a developmentalist argument, really, because Rwanda and Uganda are also not exactly developmental, uh, you know, success stories. But Rwanda, they, they talk about Rwanda as a success story, and Rwanda's recovered from an absolute, you know, obviously in terms of where they were start, where they started, you know, they, after the genocide, they've recovered a lot since the genocide, which is to their credit, but they've done so using, you know, plundered Congolese minerals, and, and they're still as very dependent on foreign aid. And, and their most developed area is their military. Uh, Uganda has an insurgency in the north that they, you know, they still haven't, you know, been able to... They're, they're, they are taking an iron fist approach. There's longstanding grievances between with minority communities. They're, they're also not a a developmental uh, showcase to the world. So it's not a developmental argument. The European, you know, as the, the Europeans know this, the donor countries know this, that the, the, the argument is more, is more crass than that. The argument is more that, that the Congo can't control its vast territory. And, uh, and so the Rwandans and Ugandans have the you know the military capacity to take what uh, what they want and you know who's going to stop them now the eastern congo as opposed to the rest of congo uh, has uh, resources that are of uh, are coveted by the west and and i suppose uh, you know china and other countries as well right well yeah although it, it's not just the east so kivu the kivus have gold and coltan and and copper and tin, but uh, Katanga, which is west of the Kivus, has lots of copper. Katanga is, the, is very famous from Congolese history because it was Katanga that did a secession in the 1960s when the Belgians wanted to make sure they could keep their um, control of Congolese resources after independence. So there was Katanga and Kasai, which also have significant resources. Kasai has diamonds. Um, they did these separations. Uh, the Belgians supported them. There were various arguments for partitions. This was the, co- the Congo crisis of the 1960s. So, in a way, like they talked a lot about Sudan, being, South Sudan being the parallel, but that's partly because people have very short memories. Uh, in fact, a much better parallel for what's going on today is the Congo crisis of the 1960s, in which a small power, Belgium, for its own reasons and for its own benefit, encouraged the secession of the Congo uh, in order to better control a smaller part of the Congo and prevent uh, a, a stronger centralized Congolese state from emerging. Mm. So uh, partitioning is essentially a, or, or just a, a mechanism by which... Uh, larger imperial powers can maintain control? Yeah, and there's absolutely no... And it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of like a... It's not, maybe not a last resort, but it's definitely more of a contingency plan. They'd always rather control the whole country 
But if they can't, then they're willing to settle for creating instability through through claims for separation. So with with Katanga's secession, it was it was brought up, it was used tactically until Lumumba was killed, and then it was taken off the table. And the United Nations then crushed the secession that they had basically argued while Lumumba was alive that they couldn't do anything about. Mm-hmm. And similarly, it's, it's an entirely tactical kind of consideration now. Nobody, nobody in the Kivu wants to secede. Nobody, there's no Kivu nationalism. There's no, absolutely no interest in, in that, in the Kivus. They're all, everybody sees themselves as Congolese. There's interest in federalism, but federalism is a whole separate proposal than what, what the M23 is, is talking about now. My impression, though, is like when you look at other areas where there's a, like partitioning or attempts at partitioning, there's usually some ethnographic uh, line on like whether it's a religion or uh, you know different tribes or whatever. Uh, but you don't see that coming into play at Congo at all. Well, the claim is no, no, no. You do because the claim of the M23 is that they're Congolese Tutsis fighting for their rights and fighting to prevent a, an, an additional genocide of Tutsis in the Congo. So. Their, their claim is very specifically Congolese Tutsi, and, and one of the, one of the problems is, of course, that all, not all Congolese Tutsi are interested in M23 or their, their claims. Like, a lot of Congolese Tutsi see themselves as Congolese and are also not interested in this, in this, in this kind of Rwandan game that, that's being played out there. So, there is, there is an, I mean, remember, the Congo is an incredibly diverse country. There's many, many language groups, many, many ethnicities. Um, you know, it's geographically vast. It's two million square kilometers. It's 60-some million people. In the east, in the Kivus, there's uh, Bashi, there's, um, there's Banya Malenge, there's lots of different ethnicities even there. Um, but then, you know, you go further west and you get Baluba, Lulua, you get you know, in Ituri, there's lots and lots of, of ethnic diversity. So one of the upshots of this is you can always find some division that can be exploited from a colonial perspective, especially in Congo where there's, there's been deliberate, systematic attempts to destroy any kind of nation-building project since, the, you know, the 50s and 60s when it became a, an issue. So going into 2013, do you have any thoughts about how this uh, situation is likely going to play out? Well, there's, I don't think there's any basis for a sustainable peace right now. You know, the, the Rwandans want, want control of, of the Kivus. The Congolese state wants to assert its authority over its, its territory. And, uh, and that's gonna be a dispute. And, and how that plays out depends a lot on what, what the United States, what United States allies are, are going to allow the Rwandans to do. And, and I think, you know, in a way, we saw some limits put on Rwanda recently, but, but that's, that's caused more of a change in strategy than a change in objective. 
And as long as those objectives are opposed in that way, I think, uh, I think, I think we're going to see the same kinds of patterns that we've seen over the past 15 years. There's going to be violence. There's going to be people displaced. There's going to be, uh, sporadic fighting. There's going to be a totally ineffective United Nations mission. And there's going to be these negotiations. And, uh, you know, the, maybe the M23 will have a new name in a couple of years, but it'll basically be the same, same kind of pattern. Okay, well, Justin Potter, uh, thank you very much for your uh, analysis of uh, this uh, whole situation. Thanks. And Justin Potter is an associate professor of environmental studies at York University. He has traveled to the Congo, to the town of Bikavu, for on two occasions since 2009. <laughs> Drown out the faintest hint of comic faggot heretics The nail that sticks up Gets hammered down The master's finest His finest tools are found Slack-jawed, placid A missing cacophony A screaming billboard and Disney fight history Sometimes the times they find us restrained No justice shines upon the cemetery plots Mark Hampton Weaver anime where Federal Euros And fraternal orders Have cast their shadows Permanent features built into but under cover of the the customary gap we find between history and truth found in With the rockets blinding red glare The bombs bursting in air One nation indivisible The truth is when backcountry learned of ratification The people had a coffin painted black Solemnly born in funeral procession And buried it deep in the earth as an Public liberty And someday Somewhere Today's empires Tomorrow's Ashes That was Today's Empires Tomorrow's Ashes by Propagandi as performed by the Magnificent Sevens. 
You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partner campus community radio stations across the country. We are also podcast at the site for the Center for Research on Globalization at globalresearch.ca. Project Censored has just released Censored 2013, and this is the top 25 most censored stories from the year 2011 to 2012. Joining me by phone is Andy Lee Roth. He is the Associate Director of Project Censored, and he uh, was the one of the editors of this year's Censored 2013. So how are you doing there, uh, Andy? Fine. Thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure to join you on the air. Okay. So do you, first of all, um, in, in compiling this year's um, Top 25, uh, do you want to maybe just help our listeners understand the the methodology? Uh, how uh, how do you uh, you know what what benchmarks uh, have to be met in order to qualify as being the the top twenty five uh, most censored stories? Right, it's actually a year long process by which we're uh, identifying, vetting, and ultimately ranking stories, um, and it's a process that involves hundreds of people from. Um, across the United States and in some cases even around the world. Um, the process is already underway for the Censored 2014 book. Um, we monitor um, independent media, um, some 800 or so websites and blogs on the Internet, another 200 or so print sources. Um, and initially it's students in Project Censored affiliated classes at colleges and universities across the United States uh, and North America and indeed around the world. Um, they bring forward stories, and initially um, they're vetting those stories for the credibility of the sources, uh, the, the quality of the reporting overall, and then um, also checking on the timeliness and import of the story, and finally for whether or not the corporate media have covered the story at all or in a complete way. And those stories, once they pass an initial round of vetting, um, appear on the Project Censored website as what we call validated news stories or validated independent news stories bins. Um, from there, the stories undergo further evaluation, especially for whether there has been subsequent corporate media coverage. And eventually, in the spring of each year, uh, we go from a list of approximately 300 or so candidate stories uh, through a voting process among all the affiliate campuses down to about 25 stories. Those stories ultimately then go to uh, an international panel of judges um, who put the stories in a rank order from 1 to 25. Okay. So um, there are no fewer than five stages where any particular story um, that we're considering undergoes a kind of vetting for the quality of the story, the significance of the story, um, whether there's corporate coverage. And in the introduction to the book, the director of Project Censored, Mickey Huff, and I write that um, by the time a story appears in Censored, uh, it's undergone five distinct rounds of review and evaluation. Um, the stories that Project Censored brings forward may be socially and politically controversial, sometimes even psychologically challenging, but we're confident that each story we bring forward is the result of serious journalistic effort. So it's really a, a, 
it's actually a central part of Project Sensor's mission, which is teaching um, the public, but also students in particular, um, media literacy and critical thinking skills. So um, it's um, well, it sounds a very like a serious process for us to bring forward a story and say this is so important um, that you ought to know about it. Okay, and uh, there are there does seem to be a very impressive, as every year, a very impressive list of, of stories. Quite surprising in, in many cases. I noticed though that you you separated you've aggregated them along uh, what, are, what are called uh, news clusters. Uh, do, do you want to talk about uh, those uh, five clusters that you've identified? Yeah, we, we this was an innovation of uh, Nikki Huff, the Project Sensor's most recent and current director. Um, arising out of a kind of a dissatisfaction at some level with the, the listing process or the listing form where it's really hard to say that a story that's number 24 is, is less important than the story that's number three. And but the clusters are an attempt to uh, uh, create a bigger picture um, and to look at the interconnections between particular news stories. So, for instance, we have a whole censored news cluster on the police state and civil liberties that ties together a handful of stories that share that theme in common. And this is something where, again, we're trying to, as an independent journal uh, media organization ourselves, we're trying to do something that we often critique the corporate media for failing to do, which is connecting the dots between stories to get at what are the underlying structures, uh, what are the overarching themes. And so the news clusters on topics like the environment and health, the human costs of war and violence, women and gender, race and ethnicity, um, uh, economics, uh, these are ways of, of showing connections and continuity across particular news stories. Okay. Um, now, uh, let's see, we've got the police state and civil liberties, uh, from Bankster bailout to blessed unrest. Uh, environmental and health, human cost of war and violence, and women and gender, race and ethnicity. Um, maybe we could just sort of look at uh, maybe a sort of a, like a, a sample from each of those uh, different clusters. Uh, so for under police, uh, state, and civil liberties, uh, I noticed one here, uh, FBI, is it FBI agents responsible for majority of terrorist plots in the United States? That's kind of yeah. a... This is our number. This is our number four story, and indeed one of the key stories in that uh, uh, police, state, and civil liberties cluster. This is a story that was brought forward as a collaborative effort between uh, reporters at Mother Jones Magazine, a long-standing investigative outlet, and um, the investigative journalism program at the University of California, Berkeley, and working together, um, folks at Mother Jones and, and uh, Berkeley identified that the FBI has a network of nearly 15,000 spies, moles, and informants um, um, whose job it is to infiltrate various communities within the United States ostensibly to uncover terrorist plots. But what the report that we brought forward as our number four story indicates is that in many cases, those, uh, those 15,000 spies, moles, informants are actually encouraging and then assisting the people in those communities in committing the very crimes that the people are then um, busted for. Um, so it's a kind of setup operation, and and it appears to be motivated by a desire on the FBI's part to show that they are playing an effective role in the battle against terrorism on the home front. Um, 
in this case, what's I think a key element of this story is um, this only works as a kind of PR strategy if the corporate media cooperate and basically take the government officials who speak on behalf of the program as the sole sources uh, on the program's efficacy. Um, what's not covered in the corporate media, and, and but what can be documented in independent uh, media coverage is that most of these cases, when they go to court, um, the judge throws them out for lack of merit. They don't even go to trial. So the charges against the people are so trumped up that a judge a judges typically deem them not worthy of convening a trial to to evaluate. Hmm. Um, so it's a it's uh, again part of a larger picture of of ways in which civil liberties are being violated ostensibly for the sake of national security, but but uh, you, you know often. Um, in ways that it seemed to be designed more to keep us uh, feeling fearful and dependent rather than autonomous and free. Now, I noticed another one, another news cluster is women and gender, uh, race and ethnicity. Um, and uh, I guess one that kind of pops out uh, in my mind is uh, sexual violence against women soldiers on the rise and under yeah. wraps. Yeah, um, and this one is uh, the story that, that is some ways the focal point for this is the 2005 death of a U.S. Army private, Lavina Johnson, that was officially ruled suicide by the Department of Defense, but in fact is sort of exemplary of um, uh, the sexual violence that female soldiers in the U.S. Armed Forces encounter on a daily basis in the course of serving their country. Um, in Johnson's case, her autopsy revealed wounds that were inconsistent with the suicide verdict, um, things including chemical burns uh, that, that some people involved in the investigation believe were intended to destroy DNA that would have been evidence, uh, DNA evidence that would have been indicative of, of rape before her death. Um, there are at least, she's one of at least 20 uh, female soldiers who have died under suspicious, similarly suspicious uh, circumstances in the, in the past year or so. Um, in 2010, the Department of Defense estimated that there were um, just uh, over 3,100 total reports of sexual assault in the military, um, but they estimate that that represents only about 13.5% of the actual assaults because many of the cases are never reported, never filed. Um, suggesting that um, a, a, a more accurate figure, uh, annual figure for rape and sexual assault in the military would be close to 19,000 cases per year. So um, this is a this is again this is a story that is not getting has not gotten and is not getting the attention it deserves in the corporate media, um, and it. Um, uh, at a time when in the United States the discourse is so much around supporting our troops, um, it's a story that ought to be more widely known. Yeah, now there's uh, you know, 25 stories here, and it's like, unfortunately, we don't have time to go through them all, but I mean, I notice you also have uh, Fukushima nuclear disasters worse than anticipated. That would be the uh, environment and health one, and uh, I, that's one that I... Uh, I had understood as being a pretty significant uh, story. Um, I don't know if, if you wanted to talk about that one or, or if there are any others that uh, you think deserve some uh, yeah. that attention. Story, that, that Fukushima story is actually itself a cluster of several stories, and I'll just mention briefly that uh, 
one of one dimension of the of the way in which the Fukushima disaster is worse than anticipated is that um, uh, here in the United States, the the Environmental Protection Agency's Radiation Detection Network, RADNET as it's known, um, actually was down uh, during the crucial time in which uh, fallout of Fukushima would have been making its way across the Pacific and to North America. Uh, and during the time that the federal government RADNET monitoring system was down, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission arranged for a private um, radiation monitoring group um, to do the monitoring. So at a time when um, we really desperately needed rigorous testing of food, water, and air throughout the U.S., um, the official monitoring system was down in favor of one that is basically a nuclear industry uh, provided monitoring group. Um, and that's a very disturbing trend when we're thinking about, for instance, the autonomy of science from business interests and so forth and so on. Okay, so a very um, you know impressive list of stories, uh, very shocking uh, in a lot of cases. Um, how, how does this selection compare uh, with previous years? Well, that's an interesting question, and, and I'll use that as an occasion um, to let uh, listeners know that um, all of the summaries of the top 25 stories for this year, as well as the archives of previous year's top 25 lists, are all available at the Project Censored website, which is projectcensored.org. Um, in answer to the question, uh, certain, you know, the news clusters in some ways indicate some of the continuity. This isn't the first year that we've had a news cluster on the human costs of war and violence. Um, and so the specifics of the stories occupying that cluster this year are different than they were in 2012. Um, but there is certainly continuity in that area. Um, our number two story out know, of the environmental cluster this year is on um, the, the fragility of our, the, that is the fragile character of the world's oceans, and that echoes stories that we have covered in previous years as well. So in each case, we have new and developing data and news, um, but the broad themes are ones often, of, uh, unfortunately, of continuity, that the, um, you know, we're, we are still treating the ocean as if it's infinite and inexhaustible when it's not. So, censored 2013, the top 25 censored stories from 2011 to 12 is uh, available now. And so you can go to the website projectcensored.org to, uh, to order a copy and to look at the archives, correct? Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Okay, well, so thanks a lot, uh, Andy Lee Roth, uh, for joining us. Andy Lee Roth is the um, associate director of the uh, Project Censored, as well as the uh, one of the uh, editors who put together this uh, Censored 2013. December 21st, 2012 marks the end of the long count in the Mayan calendar system, not the end of the world. So say Mayan scholars, Mayan priests, and even much of the mainstream media. Yet the meme seems to persist as the apocalyptic date approaches. Nevertheless, there is cause for concern about an actual doomsday scenario playing itself out in the near future with world-ending consequences. 
To discuss these scenarios, we have on the line Michel Chosodovsky, head of the Center for Research on Globalization. He's recently authored an article on his site about this subject. So thank you for joining us, Michel Chosodovsky. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be on the, on the program. Um, essentially, what we are dealing with is a campaign by the mainstream media to obfuscate the real social and economic crisis. In other words, the emphasis is on various doomsdays as well as catastrophes rather than on the fact that at this stage the United States and its allies are waging a military adventure at the global level with potentially devastating consequences. We can see it in the Middle East as it unfolds. But at the same time, this long war is coupled with the most serious economic crisis in world history, which is uh, marked by the collapse of productive systems, the, the plummeting of the standard of living worldwide, uh, a, a worldwide process of impoverishment, which is not the result of a scarcity of resources. It's the result of manipulation. It's the result of policy. So that while people have their eyes uh, uh, riveted on the end of the world in the Mayan calendar, uh, another doomsday is unfolding. I, I don't wish to, to, to say that this is an end-of-the-world um, scenario, uh, but what I can say is that preemptive war using nuclear weapons uh, does, in a real sense, threaten the future of humanity. Applying austerity measures systematically in country after country as a solution to the crisis leads to, uh, leads to the cause, actually, of the crisis, namely further collapse, so that the solution is the cause. We're, we're, in a, we're at a very dangerous crossroads in our history, and public opinion doesn't realize it. They don't realize that uh, there's a war without borders, which is unfolding as part of the Pentagon agenda, uh, they don't realize that the military-industrial complex is essentially acquiring all the revenues uh, from, the, from the state, from the state treasury, to finance endless wars, uh, that weapons, real weapons of mass destruction have been developed by the major powers, including the United States, uh, which... Um, and, uh, which, uh, uh, again, threaten the future of humanity. Now, Not to mention unmanned drones uh, attacking civilians, the repeal of, uh, the, repeal of uh, the repeal of civil liberties, the, the unfolding police state, and so on. Okay, Dr. Chostovsky, if I could just... Uh, you mentioned that uh, this, uh, the, the, the continuing meme about this doomsday scenario with the Mayan calendar as being sort of a distraction from uh, these actual... Uh, uh, concerns. Uh, I mean, is a, a significant difference there that the, the with the Mayan calendar, you're talking about something that's sort of less out, more out of the hands of uh, ordinary people or of, of of human beings, as opposed to these scenarios which are all man-made. 
Well, precisely. I mean, first of all, what the, the Mayan prophecy says is that this is the end of a calendar cycle, so to speak, and a new calendar emerges. They never talk about end of the world. They talk about a renewal, a rebirth, so that there's, a, there's a, an underlying misinterpretation. It's not to say that any mainstream media will actually, uh, will actually deny this, but the fact that this is top of the news, plastered on the tabloids, is a distraction. And what I'm saying is we have a real crisis, which is man-made, which is threatening uh, life on this planet, uh, which is threatening the environment, uh, which uh, is leading to uh, countless uh, deaths uh, of civilians uh, in in the U.S.-led wars around the world, uh, not to mention... The, the collapse of, of uh, you know, the whole uh, era of achievement, in, in, particularly in Western society, what we call the, the welfare state. And, th- in other words, not only is, is, uh, are we repealing all these achievements, but at the same time, uh, we are incapable of analyzing and understanding what is going on because the media... Uh, doesn't address these issues. And of course, with the, uh, the the whole idea of a date when the world ends, we're talk we're not just talking about something that's going to happen. It is happening now. Uh, absolutely. Now, the the thing is, if we want to look at at threats to the future of humanity, let's say doomsday scenarios, we must understand that whatever end of the world might occur. Uh, when it's man-made, it's a gradual process. It's a, bra- it's a gradual process of decay, of destruction. It's reversible, okay? It's reversible because people can act, uh, you know, in, with one another uh, in social movements across the land in reversing this, this trend. But there is a trend, okay? There is a trend, and that trend has been ongoing maybe since the early 1980s. It's it's the trend of global impoverishment. It's the dismantling of uh, public institutions, health and education. Um, it's, uh, it's the development of, of very advanced weapon systems in the military sphere. It's, again, endless wars. Uh, you know, we talk about the post-war era as the era extending from 1945 onwards, the post-World War II era. But look at all the wars that have taken place during that period. The Korean War in the, in the, you know, in the 1950s, um, North Korea, 30% of the North Korean population was, was killed during that war. Now, do people know that? Do they know that General Curtis uh, LeMay, who was uh, U.S. commander there, actually acknowledged this in a public statement? And then, then of course, North Korea is, is demonized as a threat to global security. Do they know that uh, that uh, some four to five million people died in the wars, the civil wars in the Congo, which were essentially resource wars? Do they know that in the Sudan there were four or five million people killed and uh, and impoverished? None of these wars, which are in, in a sense, they are doomsday for the people who are living them, right? 
it's the end of the world when your when your life is shattered when you when you lose your land when you go bankrupt um, two hundred and fifty thousand Indian farmers have committed suicide because of um, because of genetically modified seeds which have penetrated into the into the agricultural system um, and they're bankrupt because they can't reproduce their seeds. All of this points to an end of the world um, situation for the peoples who are living these realities. And that is what I, I emphasized in, in my article. It's the, it's the dramatic nature of, um, of the, the world order in which we're living. I don't wish to paint, uh, you know, uh, a deterministic perspective on, on this because I believe that through social action, these trends can be reversed. But it does require, uh, for, foremost, that uh, these realities be understood. And for these realities to be understood, we have to start dismantling this media uh, propaganda apparatus, namely media disinformation, which, which uh, day after day um, echo uh, essentially falsehoods, uh, uh, falsehoods regarding the war, falsehoods regarding the economy, uh, and where the plight of, of humanity uh, is is either trivialized or not mentioned. Now, the uh, whole idea of dismantling that propaganda system, uh, that's uh, sort of part of the mandate of, of this program and of your own website, but I'm wondering, having dismantled that propaganda system, how do you see the tide being reversed? Are we talking about several campaigns or maybe one kind of core campaign? Reality is changed as a result of people acting concurrently, collectively, together to change the order of things, both at the political, economic level. Uh, how will that occur? Uh, it, it's, it, that's part of history and, and our future history. But if I had to say, and it's, it's not necessarily things which will be achieved from one day to the next. In, in the financial arena, I would say we have to freeze uh, financial spec, uh, financial uh, um, manipulation, speculative operations, derivatives. Already, that is a major achievement. Um, in uh, uh, you know, there, there are many things that could be done, uh, but ultimately, we also have to understand that that uh, our society is based on power structures, people who own uh, property. Uh, who are, well, essentially they, they also own the banks, the financial institutions, the oil companies, the, the weapons factories, and so on, so that that power structure has to be targeted, inevitably. Okay? The oil companies, the biotech conglomerates, uh, you know, Monsanto, um, the big media companies, that is the power structure behind, uh, behind the system. And it has to be targeted. It has to be dismantled in some form or another. And, but I, I say that a precondition for that to occur is that people actually understand what's going on. Okay? And that they, that they, uh, uh, they refuse this Orwellian New World Order, which is based on twisted realities. 
and uh, uh, let, let me be more specific. Uh, essentially, uh, people are led to believe that war is a peacemaking operation, okay? humanitarian warfare. Uh, they are also led to believe that we need to, to repeal civil liberties to uphold democracy. So it's the police state is, a, is an instrument of democracy. That's what's, what, what's being proposed. They believe that austerity means prosperity, that austerity measures are used to create prosperity. They believe that, that wealth accumulation is an indicator of progress and development. And, um, and this of course, is, is unfolding as we speak, that actually killing and torturing alleged terrorists is required to ensure uh, national security. There are a whole series of concepts which are outright fabrications and which then are instilled in the mindset of millions of people. And as long as that is the case, we cannot initiate that kind of mass movement. We have to reverse that inquisitorial... Um, order uh, which, uh, which affects people's, uh, the way people think, their consciousness and so on, their ability to act. And as long as uh, people do not recognize uh, and understand the world in which they live, we will not be able to, uh, to uh, implement meaningful uh, social action at the grassroots level. And that's why, media, that's why independent media is so important. Okay. Well, um, Shel Chostovsky, I um, really appreciate those insights and certainly uh, look forward to speaking you, to you again uh, in the new year. Uh, we'll do what we can to, uh, I guess, reveal the truth to, to the best of our ability and uh, hopefully help to dismantle that uh, propaganda apparatus, as no doubt will your website. So uh, thank you very much, Michelle Chostovsky, for, for sharing these views with us. Well, it's a pleasure to be on the program. Uh our website is at globalresearch.ca, uh, and, um, and best wishes to everybody for the holiday season. Yes, and a Happy New Year. <laughs> happy New Year. Bye-bye for now. And that was Professor Michelle Chosodowski, uh, who is uh, the head of the Center for Research on Globalization, and uh, he spoke to us from Montreal. The Global Research News Hour is broadcast every Thursday at 10 a.m. on CKUW 95.9 FM and on our partner stations across the country. You can download our podcasts from the Center for Research on Globalization's website at globalresearch.ca. I am host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.